we just had our fourth grandchild. Uh, Brooke, my daughter, had a little boy. So the, the older sister that's not quite two now has a little brother. His name is Joseph Thomas. Uh, we're excited about that. And they're uh, both baby and mama are healthy. Uh, I want to start with a little boy a little bit older than Joseph Thomas, old enough at least to ride his bicycle. And the little boy rides his bike down to a stream to go trout fishing. He catches a trout. And this particular day, he's decided he wants his trout to be his friend. So he takes the trout and he puts him in the basket on his bike and he goes a little bit further back to his fort and he's got this little place made where he lays the trout in some leaves and he's telling the trout all the stuff they're going to do that day and the, the trout's just laying there, you know, knowing I've only got two or three minutes if you don't get me back to that stream, the rest is history. Here's my question for you. Have you ever felt like a fish out of water? Now, I'm not talking about just being in some kind of social gathering where you're kind of uncomfortable because you don't know a lot of people. I'm talking about where you are in life right now. Like, well, sure wasn't made for this. Or as one of our friends yelled out in frustration this week, is this the rest of my life? Or let's go just the opposite for a minute. Suppose the trout does make it back to the stream in time to live. And of course, as soon as he's in that water, you just see beautifully with the other trout swimming. You know, when, when you've just accomplished something, maybe it was a lot of hard work. And, uh, but at the same time, very fulfilling. And you just pause for a moment and you go, wow, this is what I was made for. The Bible scholar William Barclay said, there's two great days in a person's life. The day you're born and the day you discover why. Do you know why you're here? Every one of you whether you're sitting here in this room, whether you're watching by video, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you were created for a purpose. There is a why to why you're here. In fact, I'm going to go a step further than that. I think if you're listening to me or you're here today, that not only are you not on this earth by accident, I don't think you're in here by accident either. God has a plan. God is doing something in your life. And maybe today you'll get a few insights into the why if you don't have that completely figured out yet. We're going to contrast two kings. In a sense, there'll be a third king in there just for a little bit so you can understand the first king we're going to talk about. But we're going to contrast two kings, one that drifted in his sense of purpose, and he just kind of lost sight of it. And then one, just the opposite, that ever increasing. In fact, there were even some defining moments and some spiritual markers where there were big jumps and growth and big jump and growth. And we're going to contrast the two different kings. I want to First, before we get to that, tell you about a season in my life a few years back that was very difficult. And if you didn't know me well, you may not have known it, but my close friends knew what I was going through. And it went on for a while, um, parts of it maybe for a couple of years, but uh, real intense for months. And in the middle of it, somebody gave me a book that they thought might be an encouragement to me. And I started reading the book and I thought, oh my gosh, this, this author's been reading my mail. This this is exactly where I am and what I'm going through. The first eight chapters of the book that I'm reading are about King Saul. Now, I don't know how much you remember, you know, this is the one that preceded King David, David and Goliath. Uh, King Saul, even though you might think back to some of the bad things about him, he, he was chosen and ordained uh, and anointed by God. I mean, God used the prophet Samuel to anoint him, but it's all from God. In fact, it's so powerful what was going on. It says in Scripture that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul in power. And a few verses later, you see that same phrase used again. 
In fact, two verses after the second time that phrase is used, it talks about how there was a saying that started going around, Saul must be a prophet. He, he had the Spirit of God on him in such power that they thought that this guy was a spiritual giant. And in fact, for a few years, that's the way he was. Everything was going great. But you know, sometimes when there's a lot of power, there's things that can come with that. And sometimes uh, a little bit of the power, if it kind of gets filtered the wrong way, a lot of that can turn into pride. And in his case, not only did it turn into pride, uh, he started little by little giving himself away to temptation and evil sets in and things just start getting a hold of him that aren't good at all. In fact, you remember the youngest son of the eight boys of Jesse was David. And as a little boy, I mean, he was just kind of put off, and everybody else was off fighting, and he would just be the errand boy to run stuff when he wasn't taking care of his sheep. He had this little violin-type thing that he played and sang with, and uh, in the midst of all of it, he ends up killing a bear, and before long, he kills the giant that everybody's scared to death of, and God anoints him to be the future king. But there's a 10-year period here that is not good for David because Saul gets jealous of it. Remember, I told you he was getting evil. And he is out to kill him. He, he's going after him with spears. So David is running for his life. How would you like to know that God just chose you to be the next leader of all of his people on the planet? And now you're running for your life and spears are being thrown at you. I mean, it'll just be a miracle if you can live another 24 hours. That's, that's where David is running from Saul. So eight chapters. And I'm thinking, yeah, all these spears are coming at me. Evil is around me just like King Saul. So I'm, just, I'm in the book, man. I'm thinking this is describing where I am. And then I get to chapter 9. The book, by the way, is the tale of three kings. It's about Saul, David, and Absalom. We're not really going to do David and Absalom, other than I gave you enough information about David to get the picture. Uh, I'll give you the subtitle in a minute. But let me read you a few sentences from chapter 9. You have your eyes on the wrong king, Saul. As long as you look at your king, you will blame him and him alone for your present hell. Whoa. I mean, all of a sudden, right here in this paragraph, this book takes a turn. And it's saying, yeah, you're with me, you're with me. All those spears are coming at you. But hey, forget about that. That's not the problem. Yeah, up till this sentence, you've been the victim, and you've been blaming somebody else or all the circumstances around you. We're fixing to flip this thing. Be careful, for God has his eyes fastened sharply on another King Saul. Not the visible one standing out there throwing spears at you. No, God is looking at another King Saul, one just as bad or even worse. God is looking at the King Saul in you. Oh, my gosh. I'm telling you, when I got to this, it's like an arrow coming through my heart. Saul is in your bloodstream. He's in the marrow of your bones. He makes up the very flesh and muscle of your heart. He's mixed into your soul. He inhabits the nuclei of your atoms. King Saul is one with you. You, if I want to personalize it, you, Billy, are King Saul. He breathes in the lungs and beats in the breast of all of us. I, I don't know if you're kind of catching the drift of what's going on there. But this outer Saul and being the victim, and now all of a sudden it's telling you, you need to look on the inside. You know, one of the best ways to look on the inside is a mirror. And we'll have a little bit of fun with this, and then I'll get a little bit more serious about it. But I, I want to contrast, and I know this isn't new to you, but it's still fun to for us to be reminded of it. A man looks in the mirror. It doesn't matter how big he is. It doesn't matter how old he is. It doesn't matter how ugly he is. It really doesn't matter. 
But when we look in the mirror in the morning as males, and by the way, I, I fought hard this weekend. I don't know if I can think of an exception. This is, this is something that is legitimately, I think, the difference in a male and a female, or one of them. We look in the mirror and we go, <clears throat> I don't care what we look like, we're going to find something that's going to put a little pep in our step, and we're going to go, oh, ain't too bad. Now, let's take the female. The female, when you looked in your mirror this morning, you looked, and you looked a little closer, and you looked a little closer, and then you looked a little closer. Oh, my gosh. It's a spot, and my mask isn't even going to cover it. Everybody's going to think I'm the ugliest person at church today. You see, there's a difference, and here's the reason I'm pointing out the difference. We all have pride and arrogance in us. And it is the root of sin in all of us. But somehow there's something that gets in us guys that's a harder cookie to crack, usually, than the female. And I've been involved in a lot of it in my own life and my friends' lives this, this year. And I'm telling you, it gets tough. In fact, the subtitle of the book is A Study in Brokenness. Now, this is fixing to go a step further. Let's read a few more sentences. David would have grown up to become King Saul II. In other words, he, be, he would go, grow up to become just as evil, if not for what it's fixing to tell us. Except that God cut away the Saul inside David's heart. The operation, by the way, took years, and it was a brutalizing experience that almost killed the patient. And what were the scalpel and the tongs that God used to remove the inner Saul? God used the outer Saul, this evil. King Saul sought to destroy a David, but his only success that he was that he became the handmaiden of God to put to death the Saul who roamed about in the caverns of David's own soul. Yes, it's true that David was virtually destroyed in the process, but this had to be. Otherwise, the Saul in him would have survived. Is that not a crazy concept? To realize that all the mess around us, all the outward things and even outward people that may be literally, as this book says, creating hell for our life, may be exactly the tool that God planned to use to grow you and I. I want to give you two or three images to kind of just help hit this home because these are biblical and what God uses to work on us. I'll start with an easy one. You know the potter's house in Jeremiah, and you know the potter, of course, would be God. The jar or the pot or whatever it is that he's making that's spinning on the wheel would be you and I. And, you know, it's kind of cool if he's just sitting there with his hands and it's spinning, and he's just going to kind of help us grow a little bit and shape us up a little bit. I think we forget a verse that's a little bit more severe. In Jeremiah 18, verse 4, it says, but the jar he was making, now I'm going to personalize it. That would be me or you, but I'm going to put my name. So I'm going to say, but Billy. But Billy did not turn out as God had hoped, so he crushed it. He crushed Billy into a lump of clay again. Kind of like, Billy, how many times is it going to take? And it says, and then he starts all over. How many times is it going to take? Ah, all right. Now I'm going to try to build the character in you that I want to build in you. So crushed is a little more severe than just kind of playing with the pot that's spinning. I am, these are going to get grow in intensity here, so hold on. So the image of the potter, but crushing us to grow us, mature us, help us become what God created us to be. One that I like, a phrase even more than that, is forge. God is continually trying to forge character in your life and my life. 
And that would go back, in fact, in Scripture, it's many places in Scripture that this analogy is used. Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, where a blacksmith uses a refining fire, often with silver in Scripture, to purify and to make this metal what it's intended to be. I've got an image here of, of the steel, and there's two. We had crushed on the first one. We've got two words that come with this one, fire and hammering. In other words, to make the first was a vessel, creating a vessel that God can use. This is an instrument that God can use. And when he's hammering and hammering and hammering and fire, 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 so that he can hammer and hammer and hammer more, boy, these are not fun images. I mean, this is all painful. Crush, fire, hammering. I want to give you one more image for the, the third one. The third one would be a, a scalpel, a surgical instrument, exactly like what he was just talking about in this book. He says, you remember the evil Saul might be the very tongs and scalpel that God is using to work on your heart? I've got a little surgical. And in fact, all over it, it says sterile. Well, now that I've ripped it open, it's not sterile anymore, and I don't even have on gloves. But we're going to pull it out. I'm not going to really cut anybody's heart open today. Well, not physically. Hopefully, maybe God will get into your heart spiritually. But so there it is. And boy, they are sharp, sharp, sharp. And this literally is to cut into a body for surgery. But in Scripture, when it uses this analogy, it's about cutting open the layers of our heart and letting God work on our heart to grow us and mature us. In other words, the purpose of those spears, which is kind of like a bigger scalpel, even though it's all you can see is the evil, but David responded so well and let God build character in him through that 10 years to prepare him to lead his people. I think of Genesis 50, 20, and I was talking to a family about it while ago after the last service, that what God intended for evil, God intends for God, what man intends for evil, God intends to use for good. All the messes around you that think are just driving me insane and put me in something I am not created for, you need to see that as something that God's going to grow and shape you with. I want us to look at the other Bible character, and this one's going to be kind of fun, especially for I love all the kids that are in the, the room today. And I got several texts between services about people that work with children with this passage, and, and I love it. It's about a young, young king, one of the youngest in Scripture, Josiah. And he became king when he was eight years old, and that's one of the things we're going to see in the very first verse. There's a couple of chapters in 2 Kings 22 and 23 about his life. There's a couple of chapters in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35 about his life. We're going to look mostly at the first few verses of 2 Chronicles 34. But let me get, help you get this picture. We've been talking about King Saul. He just drifted, and he slowly faded away from God. Now, we're going to look at Josiah, and you're going to see something just the opposite. You're going to see what I was talking about a while ago, these defining moments, these spiritual markers where he jumps, like a rededication that many of you teenagers have in life. And you're going to see just this unbelievable growth uh, in his life. So let's start with Chapter 34, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Now, I want to tell you something that was a totally new revelation for me this week. I was talking to somebody in the lobby just now between services. I've taught on Josiah, I think, for over 15 years now. And, and I love the story, and I love what, how cool this is going to be for some of you children in the room, even. Uh, this was kind of new to me realizing. I used to teach, you know, an eight-year-old king, this is how I used to teach it. He would probably just be a figurehead. And all these adults around him are really running, you know, are really the ones leading God's people. He's just kind of going to be growing up so that he can do it someday. I have totally changed my opinion on that this week. One thing that sparked my attention that got me thinking this way 
is this article. Remember, he was eight when he became king. A Belgian boy heads to university at age eight. By the way, he went through all the years of junior high and high school in 18 months before this. He is now 10 years old, and he's working on his Ph.D. and getting ready to start on another one. Now, obviously, this guy is intellectually probably way smarter than any of us in this room. Now, I'm not telling you that I think Josiah was this guy. I'm telling you I think Josiah was a spiritual prodigy. I believe, like intellect in this boy, Josiah, I think God and him had some connection, and he was on fire for God even as a child. And here's why I think it. A half of a verse later, we're going to find out it's going to jump eight years on us, and he's going to be 16. It's going to be in the eighth year of his reign. But we've got some important things before that. Look what it says between the two. He, verse 2, he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He followed in the example of his ancestor David. Isn't that crazy? Let me just show you real quick. One of my sisters already texted me. She's watching from Tyler this morning. She watched the first service, and she goes, Billy, they're going to bury you with that chart. But uh, y'all know I love these charts of the kings. Uh, this particular one uh, on the northern kingdom. Now, remember, David, Saul, and Absalom are all before this. So there are many generations, two or 300 years before Josiah. But Josiah's still inspired by King David because he knows history. But I want you to see, because I just think this is such a big point that's all through Scripture, generational sin. In the northern kingdom, the kings were bad, 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 extra bad, worse bad, mostly bad, bad, bad. There's not a good one there. They all just become like their dad, just as evil. On the other side, there is a few that break the chain of sin in their family. And one of the more famous ones for breaking the chain of sin in his family is Josiah, all the way down here, number 16, among the best. But look what his dad and his granddad, among the worst and among the worst. I think it was starting to happen in him at eight years old because it says already. Now, I don't know where everything between eight and 16 happened except that it says he was pleasing in the God's sight. And he followed David, and he didn't turn front to the left or the right. He stayed on course. He didn't fade like Saul. He did just the opposite, like this. In fact, I kind of like it this way. If the topic today is slow fade, I think what we could call Josiah is no fade. There's no fade in him at all. In fact, just the opposite. He's just getting more fired up for God. During the eighth year of his reign, now he's 16, and it even says in Scripture while he's still young, it likes reminding us that he's just a kid. Josiah began to passionately seek the God of his ancestor David. There's David mentioned again, his inspiration. And now he's even more on fire for God. I think what we learn from this, probably at 16 years old, he's one of those students that walked the aisle and said, man, I'm ready to sell out now. I'm ready for him to be Lord of everything. This was one of those defining moment, kind of rededication moments in his life. Then the 12th year, now he would be 20, he began to go around and all these idols and all these other gods that people worship, and he said, get rid of them. You know, I'm the king, and we got a plan here. We're getting rid of the stuff that doesn't honor God. So I'm telling you, by the time he's finished his teenage years, he is ready to get serious about impacting for God's glory. You get a little bit further down in verse 8. It says the 18th year, so now he'd be 26 years old. While repairing the temple, they discover these older scriptures. He goes and gets some prophets to help him find out if these are valid or not. And when, they find, when he finds out they're valid, it says he tears his robes. In scripture, it means he was so repentant of, whoa, we are not obeying God's word like we should be as God's people. And he gets so serious about his own revival in his own heart that it spreads to his friends. And did you know it becomes one of the greatest revivals in the Old Testament? All from this little boy king that gets so fired up for God 
and has such a tender heart that he lets God just keep convicting him and growing him and growing him. And revival breaks out everywhere. See at the poll was just a few days ago on Wednesday morning, and of course a lot of you students were involved in it, and it was way more incredible this year than I ever dreamed. But one of the pictures that I love that we got early in the morning was from Nebraska, and we get pictures from all over the world on see at the poll morning. Uh, but this one, the, the thing I liked about it, it's just a small group, and you can see the flag in the background. And they used our theme. I, they edited this picture, you know, probably on one of the apps you guys have that does this. Uh, Return, restore, revive. And then they put one of our key verses from Josiah uh, in the other passage that describes them in 2 Kings 23 down at the bottom. I want to read you that verse. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there's never been a king like him since. Josiah is known as the most obedient king in history. And you know, it's one of the great scriptural truths is obedience always brings blessing in favor of God. It's a pretty simple truth. It's all through cover to cover of this book. Obedience is what brings the blessing in the favor of God that he wants to pour on you. A few years back, well, actually just started at lunch a few days ago. I was with a friend from here at church. And he's reminding me of this story, and he, at the lunch table, he retells my story from my life back to me in great detail. And uh, it's, I, I kind of haven't shaken it since, and some of you heard it, but it's just, um, it was one of my spiritual markers, one of my defining moments. It's a few years ago when I was speaking at Baylor University, actually in the summer to high school students. And there were other speakers there, Dr. Roy Fish, that used to be a professor at Southwestern Seminary of Evangelism before he died, had a profound impact on me and a number of my friends' lives. They didn't normally bring in somebody that old to speak, but they did this year. And what he was teaching was simple. A whole lot of the tight material we're talking about right now, but all he had was a little booklet. I meant to bring mine this morning. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. You can buy it on Amazon probably for $2.00. Uh, it's just a little, like, 12 or 18-page little booklet thing. And it's kind of letting God into the different rooms of your heart. I think way into it, it gets back to the closet down the hall that's got a stench coming out of it. You know, it's basically letting God take the scalpel and really get into your life. Now, I don't remember him saying anything just unusually profound or anointed or whatever, but I want to tell you something. I was sitting in that auditorium on the Baylor campus that night about right in that area, and there's high school students packed, about 1,200 of them in the room. And I'm telling you, the Spirit of God was in that room as strong as any I've ever been in my life. And I, I guess I will go to my grave trying to understand when and how do those times happen. I, I, I honestly pretty much come to the conclusion that I'll never figure out a whole lot. Let me tell you what I think I've learned to this point. Every year that I live, I think it has a whole lot less to do with who is up here teaching and I think it has a whole lot more to do with what's going on in the hearts of you as the audience. I, I believe that with all my heart. How hungry you walk in this room. I, I wish that every Sunday we could just stand back at these doors and everybody comes in, that we could just give them a spiritual salt tablet so that by the time they get to the seat, they're just dying of thirst because spiritually they want God to feed them. And I'm telling you, that's what it was that night. These students in this room were so hungry to hear from God. And boy, was God's spirit falling. We finished that session. I'm going to be speaking the next hour. But while the students are walking to different places or whatever on the break, I step across the street, and there's just a dimly lit alley. And I kind of almost get in the fetal position on the concrete against one of the brick buildings on the Baylor campus, 
just swinging back and forth with my head against the brick. Not unusually painful. I am just so broken before God. Telling him I'm sorry. Just over and over, I just said, I'm so sorry, God. I'm so sorry. Now you're thinking, well, what are you sorry for, Billy? Let me describe my life. I'm speaking at this time. I'm writing at this time. I'm traveling. I'm doing all these great things for God. I'm trying to be a good husband to my wife, Tracy. I'm trying to be a good dad to my kids who are back here. So everything looked great on the outside. But I tell you, when I was sitting in that chair, I realized that for months and months and months, maybe even a year or two, my heart was slowly fading away from God. All looked good on the outside, but I'm telling you, I was in a slow fade. You've heard me say it many times before, but just like any plant life, you look when you walk out these doors, everything's either growing or dying. There is no plateau. If you think you've plateaued, which is where I was living at this moment, it just took the Holy Spirit to convict me, you know, you're not plateaued. You're drifting. You're drifting away from God. Complacency. Big sins always start with small compromises. Some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis' classic screw tape letters. The gist of the book is this screw tape is a senior demon, and he's training his nephew, Wormwood, almost like an intern, how to be a good tempter to humans on earth. And so there's a demon assigned to each human. And he's training Wormwood, how to, whoever he's assigned to, how to go after this person. And here's what he's telling him. All you young demons, you, you think you've got to go get the big sins. You want to try to make that person a terrorist or a murderer or an adulterer or something like that. And Screwtape goes, no, 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 no. Let me give you the best strategy at all. Here, and let me just read you a few sentences from Screwtape Letters. Remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you can separate man from God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge man away from the light and out into nothing. The passage a while ago that Daniel was just reading Scripture from. He was talking about that light, and this is saying, yeah, get them away from that light and just get them to slowly fade into the abyss. In fact, it goes on to say, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. Do you understand what the senior demon is training all the other demons in here? Just get Christians to get in this deal of a slow fade. And they won't even realize what's going on. You know what the thing I was so ashamed about that moment on that Baylor campus was? I didn't even realize it was happening. It had been going on for months in my life and I did not even realize it. That's what Satan wants to do in your life. Let me give you three signs, and we're going to look at a video clip. Here's some signs that maybe you're in that slow fade. Worldly things become more important than God. James 1.8 says, your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And, you know, some of the quick signs of how that one works is maybe your devotions were really alive and fun at one point in life, but this just isn't that important to you as much as it was. And you know what? Worship, and boy, Satan's done a heyday on this one because he's given you plenty of excuses to not be involved in gathering and worship, but church is just not as important to you as it was. All those things can be a sign of getting in the slow fade. 
And boy, you talk about crafting just all the right things on the outward saw right now to create this force. Satan's doing a heyday of it. The next one I would give you would be a loss of conviction. In other words, um, black and white now is becoming gray and your heart's just getting harder. It's not as sensitive as it used to be. And you don't sit here with a tender heart toward the Holy Spirit to teach you. You know, Jeremiah, whew, he had it tough. He had to be God's smoke spokesman in the middle of way bigger messes than we're in. And it was no fun. In fact, at one point he said he wished he'd never been born. And uh, he said, I've become the laughingstock of everybody because I have to tell them all this stuff from God. And they, they certainly don't want to live that way. And he got so frustrated, he decided he'd do a little test. He just had enough of it. He's just going to try not to talk about God then. Well, his test kind of backfired on him. But I love this verse that tells about his little experiment. Ezekiel 36, 26. Ooh, where am I? I'm sorry, I've mixed up two points. Ah. Uh, let me come back to Jeremiah in just a second. First, this is Ezekiel. We'll come back to Jeremiah. I will give you a new heart. This is back to the tender heart, the hardened heart. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. I love that. No matter how far you've drifted or faded from God, God wants to give you a new tender heart that can be tendered toward conviction again. All right, now we'll go to the Jeremiah, which is the third one. And that means you're, you're, the third one is your witness is deteriorated. Not only is your life not example anymore, you don't even want to talk about God and be a verbal witness to others. So through your life or in talking about God. So his experiment was to try to not to talk about God. Jeremiah 20 verse 9. But if I say I'll never mention the Lord or speak in his name, his word burns in my heart like a fire. It's like a fire in my bones, and I'm worn out trying to hold it in. I cannot do it. Or your translation may say, indeed, I cannot. I love that. Jeremiah was going to try in his frustration not to talk about God anymore, but he realized it's so fired up inside him. It's a fire in his, it has to ooze out of him. He can't keep it in. I love the phrase that Ronnie used in a few messages back, image bearer. You and I are to be God's image bearer this week. You may be the only Jesus other people see this week. So if your witness is deteriorated, your heart's no longer tender to be convicted, and worldly things are becoming important, you're not, God's word in his church isn't even important anymore, maybe it's a sign that you're drifting. The way Jesus described it in the New Testament, in, Jesus, in Genesis, Revelation 2, 4, and you're familiar with it. You've, you've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Here's how I would interpret that verse. You've slowly faded from your first love of Jesus, and look how far you've drifted. A few weeks ago, Tracy and I were spending a weekend with some Christian couples. And in the middle of it, a couple of marriages that are struggling came up and we're talking about how we can be an encouragement to them and how in the world do you get there and what can we learn from it that our marriages won't get there. And in the middle of it, one of my friends uses, throws out the phrase, slow fade. You know, theirs didn't deteriorate overnight. It was a slow, methodical thing. And a few minutes later, that phrase comes out again. Well, it definitely got on my radar. Let's fast forward about 10 days after that. We're on another trip. 
This time I'm in Colorado where I'm going to be doing a wedding, and we're with some of these same Christian couples, and the couple that I'm going to be marrying in two days invites all of us older couples over for dinner two days before they get married, and they want to drill us about what they can learn that will help them in their marriage because they're both on fire for God. One of them, a young Christian. And they started asking us questions about what it's going to be like. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe they still got married after that dinner that night. I mean, they kept asking questions. And for hours, we sit at that dinner table. And us three Christian couples, we just start unloading on them. Satan's going to come here. Satan's, in fact, Satan's coming after you guys with both barrels. He's going to come here. He's going to do this. You're going to get you all in a fight in a weak moment. He's going to get your eye drift into this. And we just tell them all the horror stories, you know, of you better get ready. Satan's coming after you. Well, then a slow fade. That phrase kept coming out. And now it's really on my radar. So the next morning we get up and we all have our quiet times in different parts of the house, not, not even with your own spouse. You know, everybody's in an individual place somewhere. And then after, you know, 45 minutes or so in the morning, we kind of gravitate to somewhere. Well, us guys had gravitated to having coffee up by the kitchen. The girls had already gravitated out to the porch, you know, Colorado in the summer, it's gorgeous. And I asked the question, hey, 10 days ago, you keep mentioning that phrase, slow fade. Last night, you mentioned the phrase, slow fade again, and you keep talking about this song. The whole time, I've been thinking you've been talking about a secular song. Are you talking about that old song by Casting Crowns, Slow Fade? And he goes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And I said, have you ever seen the music video to that song? And he goes, I think I have. I said, oh, my gosh. It's like a sermon in five minutes. So us men, we watched the video. And we get under such conviction, we decide we've got to go out there to the girls. <laughs> and we took the laptop out to the girls and watched this video together. Let's watch. Second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade. When black and white turn to gray and thoughts invade, choices are made, a price will be paid when you give yourself away. 
Business trip. Do you have to? Well, maybe they can do without me this time. Wow. It's the little sins that lead to the big sins. People don't crumble in a day, families don't crumble in a day. Daddies don't crumble in a day. Marriages don't crumble in a day. Your faith doesn't crumble in a day. It's a slow, gradual fade. One of the biggest strategies of the enemy. D.L. Moody said, boy, I know Satan's for real. Two reasons. One, the Bible says so. The other is I've done business with him. <laughs> 
Satan is for real. And he wants to get you to drift from God. And he wants to get you to drift from your family. So, March was seven months ago. COVID took off. Are you closer to God now than you were in March? Are you blaming all the outward Saul and everything going on around us and just when we think it can't get worse, it is getting worse? Or could God be using all of the outward Saul as a scalpel to do surgery on your heart? In James it says, draw near to me, God said, and I'll draw near to you. Isn't that interesting to order it, put that in? God is saying it's in your court. You make the next move because I am so right here, so ready to engulf you and bless you and lead you and help you. But maybe you need to take the first step to your knees to draw near to me. And then I'm ready. Two great days, the day you're born, the day you discover why. If you're still searching for the why, let me give you a great place to start. Philippians 3.10, Paul said, for my determined purpose is to know Christ. I love his determination. If you don't know Christ, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, well, there's your starting place. If you want to learn more about how you can ask Jesus in your heart and you can start guiding and directing your family, I say that almost like it's something to a dad or a mom. Hey, it could be one of you students. God can use anybody to influence a family for God's glory. Right outside this door, about 100 feet over at the top of some steps, there's going to be some people that can help you this morning. In fact, Ronnie's out of town, so we've got, got, uh, you get a couple of gifts if you go to ask more questions about Jesus or more questions about our church if you're a visitor and you want to learn about our church. So we kind of had to up the ante since there's no Ronnie and Robin today. God wants to work in your life. And I'll tell you what, if you already are a believer and you get a little more determined about following and chasing after Christ, you'll be amazed about how the way or the reason that you're here, how that'll just start to fall in place. You, I mean, the why is what I meant to say. You just chase after Jesus aggressively and the why you're here will start making a whole lot more sense. It will become clear, I promise. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Thank you for today. Thank you for speaking to us from your word. And I love Bible characters, and I love being challenged by this young King Josiah. I love how David, even when all the spears were coming at at him, just let character be built in his life. We are in the middle of some of the craziest times that we'll be telling our grandkids and their kids about someday, assuming we're here that long. But I pray that you'll help us to quit looking at all the outward and blaming this and this and this on the outward. And that we'll search the inward and realize that even the evil around us, you want to use to grow us, to build character in us, to give opportunity to us, to stretch us, to forge character in us, in my heart, in my life, to be an image bearer for your glory. 
that we would be so determined. Hey, the slow fade can happen to anybody, but we'd be determined it is not happening to me. No, I'm not closer to God than I was in March, but by golly, yes, I have faded, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm fixing to turn the trajectory back around to get my focus on Christ. And God, I want you to help me passionately chase after you. Some maybe just need to be honest right now to pray, God, you got to help me to want to want you more. Thank you for today. I agree with what Daniel said when he walked out here a while ago. Wow, there's something going on in this room. It's almost like every church in America right now, we're like all part of church plants because we're starting to rebuild everything back. God, may that be a picture of our heart that we start to rebuild everything back and go far beyond. In Christ's name I pray, amen.